Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, uh, verse 11, found on page 1040 in the Pew Bibles. Now, this morning we begin the third part of the sermon series that we are currently in, which I have titled The Big Picture. Uh, the, the purpose, or kind of the design of this sermon series from the beginning was to give us a bird's eye view of the scripture so that we might see the entire biblical storyline from beginning to end. And we began back in Genesis 1 through 4, where we saw both God's good design for his creation and the tragic consequences of man's treasonous rebellion against God's gracious rule, which explains why the world is the way that we experience it today, which explains why we are the way that we are today. We then turned our attention to Romans 1 through 4 to see the climax of God's response to our sin. In Genesis 3, God had promised to put the world right again through the seed of the woman. And in Romans, we learn that the seed of the woman through whom God does this, through whom God accomplishes this end, is none other than Jesus Christ himself, whom Paul tells us was delivered up for our sins and raised for our justification. In other words, Romans shows us that God puts the world right, not by giving us something to do for him, but by doing something for us. The good news of the gospel is not that there is something that we can do to reconcile ourselves to God, but it is that God has done something in Christ to reconcile us to himself. This morning, we turn our attention to the last four chapters of Revelation, and we will spend several weeks here. And here in these chapters, we will see how God's redemptive work will be brought to a conclusion. Here we will see what, how God is going to bring all the loose ends and, and tie them up and how it is all going to end and what it is going to be like when that good work which he has begun in Christ is finally brought to resolution, finally brought to completion. Now, I have to admit right at the outset that I am at least a little bit nervous about preaching from Revelation. And I am nervous for two reasons predominantly. First, I'm nervous because Revelation is a difficult book. It is a, a difficult book with many strange images that can be hard to understand and, and hard to explain. But it is not the difficulty of the book that primarily has me nervous. The main reason that I am nervous as I turn to Revelation is that I know that people tend to be very passionate about their particular interpretations of these strange images. And that can be a problem when people begin to disagree. You, know, you think the dragon's what? You know, and people start to, to talk among one another, and, and they, they hold their views with great passion, and so the, the discussions can become passionate very quickly. And I am confident that as we begin to look at these verses, that I am at least at times going to differ with some, if not many, of you and how I interpret John's visions and what I think the, the particulars mean. You see, there are basically four schools of interpretation when it comes to John's revelation. 
Now, the first school of interpretation is what is sometimes called the preterist school, which means that those who in this school believe that all of these visions were, were visions of something that occurred long ago in the past. These, these are visions of things that occurred in John's day, or at least in, in the generation immediately following him, things that occurred in the first century with the, with the church and with the Roman Empire. And so those who, who look at these visions in that way, they, they look to the history of the early church to see where and when these visions were fulfilled. The second school of thought is, called, uh, is sometimes called the historicist school. And it, it is those who, who believe that Revelation gives us a, a picture of the entire church age, beginning in the first century, but continuing on until that age ends, whenever that happens to be. And so those in this school, they try to connect John's visions with various points in church history. They think, okay, you know, chapter 4 sort of begins with, with the uh, second century or the first century, and then it just kind of follows its way through, and you can kind of trace the history of the church through uh, the, the visions of Revelation. And they try to determine, okay, where, where do we think we are in, this, in the uh, sequence? Where do we think we are? What can we expect, expect next? A third school is called the Futurist School. Uh, you know, real creative names here, you know. The, uh, and the Futurist School, obviously, they, they believe that most of the visions that are described here in John's uh, Revelation are things that are still future to us today, and so therefore in the very distant future to those who were the first audience of this book. And the Futurists, they, they begin, they, they think that the fulfillment of these visions might begin at any moment, and so they're constantly looking to, to see, okay, are these visions being fulfilled in our day, and when might this begin to happen? There is a fourth school as well, and this fourth school is sometimes called the idealist school. Uh, and while that's not exactly the, uh, the best name in the world for the school as far as I'm concerned, it, what they believe is uh, that, that this does describe for us church history. It, it is a, um, they agree with the historicists in that sense. However, they do not believe that the vision sort of give us a chronological sequence. Rather, when they look at the book, they see a lot of, of repetition. They see a, a lot of um, uh, recapitulation. And so they say, you know, what's going on here is that John is having a, a series of visions which, which see the entire church age, and they repeat a lot. And that's why you get, you seem to have Jesus' return at different places in the book, and you're like, well, what's going on here? What's he going to turn? Is he going to turn once? Is he going to return twice? Is he going to return three times? We don't really, what's going to happen? How's it all going to unfold? But the idealists say, well, listen, what's going on is that there's a whole series of visions here, and it's, it's not a sequence of things, but it's rather a sort of like a snapshot. You have a snapshot of this, and then you have a snapshot of that, and, and you may not exactly know what order they're going to be in, but, but you get a picture of what's going to happen. You get a picture of, of what it's going to be like, and so they don't see um, this as, as, a, as a chronological sequence, but rather individual pictures of, of the cosmic battle that is going on between uh, God and Satan, and those who are on God's side and those who are on uh, Satan's. And so these four camps, these four schools of interpretation, obviously take a very different tack on, on what each individual vision means. Now, if you force me to choose, I'm going to come down tentatively in that fourth camp, that, that camp of, of the idealists, and I suspect that Many of you will be in one of the other camps, and that's okay. You know, it could be a problem, but I hope that it won't be. And I hope that it won't be for this reason. Because what I hope to show you over the course of the next several weeks is that while we may disagree on the details, we may, we may even disagree on the time frame of when these things are going to take place, the overall message of Revelation is actually very clear. 
Revelation is a difficult book when you get into the details. But, but the overall big picture is actually very simple. The message of Revelation can really be boiled down to this, that Jesus is going to win, that Satan is going to be defeated, and that his people are going to be received into the new heavens and the new earth. Why my favorite commentary on the book of Revelation is called simply the triumph of the Lamb. That's the storyline. That's the big picture. And so while I will not, I, I have no doubt that I will not persuade you uh, to agree with me on every detail over the course of the next several months, that doesn't matter. And that doesn't matter. What matters is that we see the big picture, that we see the overall storyline, that we understand that this book was written to comfort believers in the first century, believers who were facing persecution. And it is meant to be a comfort to us today because the bottom line is this, that Jesus is going to win. So with that in mind, let us go to the Lord God in prayer and ask for his blessing upon our study before we turn our attention to the reading of his word. Pray with me. Father God, we admit that Revelation can be a difficult book. But Father, it is your word. And therefore, it is given uh, to benefit us, to equip us, uh, to live to your glory. We pray that it would do just that this morning. Father, may your spirit attend your word as it is here read and as it is preached. And may he apply it to our hearts. And may he cause it uh, to bring forth fruit in our lives uh, to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 19, beginning uh, at verse 11. I'm going to read to the end of verse 20. So sort of just take in the vision. Uh, listen to the things that John saw and listen for the big picture. Uh, don't get caught up in the details you don't understand, but just listen to the big picture. Jesus is going to win. Beginning at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, 
and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And then the thousand years are ended. Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From, the presence of earth, from, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And that is the reading of God's Word. Have you ever seen one of those photo mosaics, one of those pictures that is made up of a bunch of other smaller pictures. You know, when you look at the picture from a distance, you can you can see what it is. You can you can see what it represents, whether it's a Coke commercial or whether it's some some work of art. You can see what the picture is. But then, as you get closer, you realize that that each individual square is actually a picture in its own right. Well, in a sense, that's what Revelation is. Revelation is a picture mosaic. It's a bunch of individual visions, a bunch of individual pictures that together paint a clear picture of the victory of Christ. Here in these verses, we have a series of five visions, each introduced by the phrase, Then I saw. And together, these visions give us a a glimpse of the consummation of redemptive history. They show us how God is going to bring it all to an end. What I want us to do this morning is just very quickly to look at each vision individually and then to step back and ask what we see when we look at the whole. So let's begin by looking at each vision individually. First, Revelation 19:11 through 16, the first vision that we have here. And this vision is unmistakably a vision of Jesus Christ. Notice the one who sits upon the horse is called Faithful and True. He is called the Word of God. He is called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he is envisioned as a great warrior sitting upon a white horse who comes out of heaven 
to make war against his enemies. He is coming to destroy those who oppose him. But notice verse 11. We are reminded that he makes war in righteousness. His war is a just war. His enemies deserve to be defeated. And we see that this is no dispassionate exercise for him. In verse 12, we see that his, his eyes are like flames of fire. His eye, he has fire in his eyes. He's, he's passionate about what he is doing. He's, he's passionate for righteousness. And he carries out his, his mission with zeal. And we see in verse 13 that his robe is dipped in blood. Now, this is not a reference to Jesus' own blood, which was shed for sinners, but this is a reference to the blood of his enemies. He is, his blood has been soiled by the blood of his enemies as it has been spilt. His, his blood has become splattered with, or his grove has become splattered with their blood, just as Isaiah 63 said it would. We read in Isaiah 63 that the man, uh, that the servant of God who carries out the judgment of God's, that his robe will become splattered in blood, be like one, a robe dipped in blood. In verse 14, we see his vast army, uh, an army which, which represents or, or symbolizes his irresistible power. In Scripture, we often hear of God referred to as the Lord God Almighty. But, it, but the, in reality, that phrase could be, could be translated more literally as the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord who has a vast army at his disposal. It is a symbol of un, uh, unstoppable, irresistible and here we see Jesus with a vast army symbolizing and representing that there is no possibility that his enemies are going to be able to stand against him. His army is vast. He is indeed the Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty. And that's exactly what we see happen in verse 15. He begins to strike down all his enemies, ruling them with, with an iron scepter. Which again echoes back to Psalm chapter 2 where God laughs in the face of men who, who dare to, to stand against them. He says, who are you, O men, uh, to resist me? My king, my anointed one is going to rule over you with an iron scepter. And that's exactly what we see carried out. That here in the second half of uh, um, Verse 15, we see that this Christ, this, this great warrior, is carrying out the fury of God's wrath against those who stand opposed to his rule. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords because there is no king, there is no Lord, there is no power, whether human or spiritual, that can possibly stand against him. That is who Christ is. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is, uh, in a very literal sense, an awesome vision, an awe-inspiring vision. A vision that may make many in the evangelical church today uncomfortable. We, we are um, so used to thinking of Jesus meek and mild, to thinking of, of Jesus as the one who, who would not break a reed. You know, that's, that's right. That, that's part of what Scripture reveals about Him. But He is also a great warrior who utterly destroys those who stand against Him, who utterly destroys those who dare to make themselves His enemy. And this is who we are introduced to in verses 11 through 16. The second vision introduces us more thoroughly to what it is that He is going to do. And you'll notice that verse 17 opens with a somewhat horrific invitation. Here the angel of the Lord calls to the birds of prey and says, Come, prepare yourself for a feast. And what is the feast going to be? It is nothing other than the flesh of God's enemies. It is clearly, uh, this invitation is clearly meant to announce the inevitable defeat 
and the absolute defeat of God's enemies. He says, listen, their corpses are going to be strewn on the battlefield and the birds of prey are going to devour their flesh because I am going to destroy them. At verse 19, we see these enemies gathering for war. Uh, they are gathering together uh, to oppose him who sits on the white horse. And whether you think this is a literal future battle, a decisive battle that is going to take place sometime in the future, or whether you believe that it is simply a vision of the ongoing conflict between Christ and his church, which marks the present age, the picture, the overall picture is clear. That Satan is, Satan hates Christ. He hates Christ's rule. He is gathering together his forces to oppose Christ's rule. And he is going to be utterly defeated in the process. The followers of Satan, the beast and the false prophet and all the kings of the earth who follow him, they are going to be wiped out. The beast and the false prophet are going to be thrown in judgment into the lake of fire. Uh, the enemies are going to be slain to, to await judgment at a later date. This is clear from the second vision. In the third vision, you see Satan himself captured and, th and bound and, and thrown into the pit as he awaits his final judgment. We are told that he is to remain bound for a thousand years, during which time he will not be able to deceive the nations any longer, but that after the thousand years are up, he will be released for a short time. Now, I think you're already aware that there's been significant disagreement about how to understand this, this thousand-year period that, that Revelation here speaks about. Christians have, have held many views. Uh, there are some who are known as premillennialists who believe that, that Christ is going to return and initiate this a thousand-year reign, that when Christ returns for this, uh, what we call the second coming, that at that time he is going to bind Satan. And at that moment, uh, Satan will be bound for a thousand years, and the church will experience un, um, unparalleled success on the earth until uh, the time of the second coming at the end of the thousand years. There are others who believe that, that this millennium will actually occur sometime in the future, but it's going to occur before Christ's return, that we are going to sort of, it's going to sort of come about, that the church in, in, enjoys more and more success until finally uh, we see that Satan has been bound and that the church is flourishing here on earth. And then at the, after that thousand years, Christ will come uh, and, uh, and judge. But then there are also those who believe that this millennium has already begun. That we are already in the middle of it right now. They are known as, as all millennials. They believe that the thousand years began when Christ was crucified, when he ascended to his Father's right hand, and that the entire time between his first and second coming is this a thousand years. So clearly those who hold to this view, and I happen to be in that camp, those who hold to this view believe that Satan is already bound, that he is already uh, being held for judgment. And such a view is supported by Jesus' own words in Luke 11 when he says that he has already bound the strong man. That he has already bound the strong man so that he can pillage his goods. I would dare say it's even supported by church history. And we tend, when we look at church history, to focus on the weaknesses of the church. And the weaknesses of the church, they are great and they are many. But hear this. The church from the first century until now has been progressing. It has been growing. There are more Christians alive today than in the previous 20 centuries put together. We don't often think about that, but God is winning. The church is advancing. People are being redeemed. They are being uh, united to Christ by faith. 
And while the church may be weak in our particular location here and now, it is exploding in other parts of, of the world. Christ's church is advancing. And so there are, there are premillennialists, there are postmillennialists, there are amillennialists. But again, whichever view you hold, whether you think that Satan is already bound or whether you think that he's going to be bound at some point in the future before Christ returns or, or after Christ returns, don't miss the point that we all agree on. The point that we all agree on is that Satan will be bound, that he will be bound, that he will be held for judgment, that his purposes will not prevail. That as Jesus said, the gates of hell will not stand against the advance of his kingdom. And notice that. It's not just that God's kingdom is going to survive in some little corner of the world as Satan's kingdom flourishes. Notice who's the aggressor when Jesus says that. It is the gates of hell which are going to be overrun. It's not the, the gates of heaven that are going to stand against the onslaught of the devil, but it's the gates of hell that are going to be overrun by the advancing kingdom of God. The gates of hell are going to be utterly undone. They're going to be knocked down. And his kingdom is going to be utterly destroyed. And all who are on his side are going to be judged. And they're going to be judged decisively. This leads us then to the next vision, which is the vision of Christ's millennial reign in verses 4 through 10. Now we know that this is the same thousand years because of what we read in verse 7. And so if, if this is right, and, and if I'm right to say that Satan is already bound, then I must also say that, that we as believers, we as saints are already reigning with him. Even those who have been killed, even those who have been martyred for their faith, they are already reigning with Christ. And again, I would suggest to you that this corresponds uh, very well with what we read elsewhere in the New Testament. In Paul's letters, in, in Colossians chapter 3, he says that we as believers have already been raised with Christ. We have already experienced the first resurrection, as it were. He says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, we have been raised with Christ and we are already seated with Him in the heavenly places. That is, Christians are already raised to life. They already enjoy that new resurrection life. Not in full yet. Uh, there's, a, there's a not yet category here. But we already have it. We already possess it. And we are already reigning with Him in heaven. And that's what we read elsewhere in the New Testament. It makes perfect sense if we read here this vision of Christ's millennial reign as being a description of our present experience. But even if you don't believe that, even if you don't believe that this is our present experience, even if you think that John is here seeing a vision of something that is yet future, the reality is clear. All Christians, including those who have, who have suffered and died for their faith, will one day reign with Christ. It's, it's coming. It, it's, an inevitable, uh, it's an inevitable end. The, the suffering that we experience in this life, it cannot stop or thwart God's good purposes for his people. Look again at verse 6. John writes, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. So however you understand that first resurrection, whether you think that is our, our, our new life that we already have in Christ, or whether you, you think that is something yet future, notice what it says. It says, Blessed are they for over such the second death, which indisputably refers to the condemnation of God's judgment. Over them the second death has no power. Christians who have been born again 
Christians who are united to Christ by faith, over them the second death has no power. There is nothing to fear in the future. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For us, the future, the future judgment of God holds no threat. And so when Satan is released in verses 7 through 10 to deceive the nations, he holds no real threat to the people of God. And notice that. We sometimes hear about this future release of Satan. We think, oh no, what's he going to do? Well, what's he going to do? He's going to be destroyed. Look again. He says in verse 9, Satan's destroyed. He's gathering his forces, or Satan is released. He's gathering his forces for battle. And then before he can do anything, fire comes down from heaven and consumes him. And the devil is thrown to the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. Satan's release is something like the release of a, of a, a death row inmate from his cell. Not so that he can go free, but so that he can go to his execution. It's a, he is a dead man walking. That is who Satan is when he is released. He is, he is not some powerful foe who is now going to threaten God's purposes. He is a dead man walking, released from his prison so that he can go to his execution. Even before he starts the battle, fire comes down from heaven and consumes him. That's the certainty of our future. That is the certainty of our future. And I'm going to have to leave uh, Revelation 11 through 15 for next week, but... but Let's just think about what we've seen so far in these visions. Individual visions. And and again, details are maybe hard to interpret. I interpret them one way. You, You may interpret them another way. But the overall picture is clear. And it is meant to be a comfort to us. It's meant to comfort us in a number of ways. It's meant to assure us that, that evil is going to be dealt with. You know, we have an instinct where, where we don't like to see people get away with murder. We, we don't like to be, whether it's literal or whether it's figurative, when, when people do things wrong, we, we don't like them to get away with it. It, it bothers us. That's why we're so quick to, to, to hit someone back when they hit us first. That's why we're so quick to return evil for evil. We think they need to be punished. Now, our instinct to take matters into our own hands, our, our instinct to think that we are the executors of judgment, we're wrong on that end. But we're not wrong to think that evil needs to be dealt with. It does. And these verses uh, confirm for us that it will be dealt with. And that allows us to be patient. It allows us to wait for God to do it. There are people today who, who somewhat foolishly say, well, why doesn't God just take care of evil? If he's going to do it, why doesn't he just do it? What they don't understand is that it is not his apathy. It is not his lack of strength. But it is his almighty patience that makes him wait. Because he is waiting and he is offering us opportunity to repent. He's offering an opportunity to bow the knee and to, to confess faith in him and to accept the salvation that he offers. It is not a lack of concern. It is not a lack of strength. But it is patience that makes God wait. And we ought to be thankful for the waiting. We ought to be thankful for the delay. Because it gives us opportunity not to, to take that benefit for ourselves, but also to share that benefit with others. And that's the second part of the comfort here. The second part of the comfort is not only that evil is going to be dealt with, but that our future is absolutely secure. 
because of what we are about to celebrate at this table, because of Jesus Christ's death for us, because He has taken the wrath of God and drunk the cup of God's wrath to the dregs, there, God, the fury of God's wrath now holds no threat for us. Our future is secure, secured by the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. And however you interpret the details, that is crystal clear. That is unmistakable. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is our great King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will utterly defeat all our enemies. He will put every wrong right. And He will bring us into His kingdom, not because of what we deserve, but because He has chosen to love us in Christ. And because we have received the gift of His salvation by faith. That is the gospel storyline. And that is how it is going to end. And because that is the future that is in store for us, that is why we call this good news. Now, do you believe that? Pray with me. Father God, some, some amazing visions. Visions that are difficult for us to comprehend. But, Father God, help us to step back and see the big picture. Help us to see the triumph of the Lamb. Help us to see, Father, that your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the King of kings. And that he will utterly defeat all his enemies. Help us to see that our future has been secured because he has already drunk to the dregs the cup of your wrath. So, therefore, your future judgment holds no threat for those who are in Him by faith. Give us this confidence. Give us this faith. And use it to bring forth the fruit of faith in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name.